This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. And now to introduce today's special guest, please welcome one of our ASMAC board members, Ira Hershen. Where are you, Ira? Anyway, it's uh, my pleasure um, to introduce you to Lee. My first experience, um, I succeeded Alf Clausen in the role of orchestrator, and uh, the first job I got with him was uh, on an interesting picture called Transylvania 65000. <laughs> The most interesting part of which was that it was recorded in Zagreb. And Alf, uh, had, well, you were working on moonlighting, I think, then. And uh, so Alf said to me, he said, you know, the farthest east I got was Warner Brothers. <laughs> and, but um, let me tell you that um, Lee is one of the classiest people that I've ever had the privilege to know. Um, Excellent musician. You know, one thing about ASMAC is we like, like to talk about music. And I remember working with him on a, um, and this is what a real, you know, a musician and a composer does. Um, uh, there was a uh, movie of the week called Young Harry Houdini, in which he, there was a two and a half minute sequence um, where he's working on a trick. And how Lee scored that was with a single, C that just sustained in about two or three octaves in the strings. And it was gripping to see it. I would never have thought of that, you know. Um, but that's what composers do. It's, it's clarity. Lee is one of the most melodic composers that I know. Um, we did a picture called Old Gringo where some great, that would have been had that picture had it, really. There's some beautiful themes in that. And, and uh, if you don't, he is not a film composer. He's a composer who happens to write for film. And um, if you don't believe that, listen to his violin concerto, especially the second movement. It's one of the most um, soulful, passionate things you'll ever hear. So anyway, um, I'm really glad he could be here. How about a round of applause for my good friend, Lee Holdridge. Ira is such a brilliant orchestrator. When The first time I heard his orchestration, I said, are you channeling Hershey Kay and Robert Russell Bennett or something? I mean, he was just amazing. He's an amazing writer. Um, thank you for having me here today. I, I'm very nervous because you're always nervous in front of your peers. So I, I wrote down a few thoughts. If you, don't, if you will indulge me, I'd love to read you a little story that I wrote, and then we can ask questions and we'll gossip and we'll do everything. I'm, I'm, I try not to mention names too much. You know, because <laughs> you can get into a lot of trouble. <laughs> but I call this a standing in the room blog. <clears throat> I have had a career that has spanned 46 years from my first paying music job in 1962 to the current film I am currently working on. During that time, I have scored 45 theatrical films and at least close to 200 network and cable television movies, miniseries, and episodes. From 1962, I have written countless songs, a Broadway show, 
and a considerable amount of concert works, including at least six concertos for soloists and orchestra, six one-act operas, two ballets, around 20 chamber works, and at least 16 large orchestral works. In the late 60s, I really started doing a lot of record arranging in New York. I worked a lot with artists on RCA Records. It was that work that caught the attention of Neil Diamond and his producer, Tom Catalano. They brought me to Los Angeles in 1969 to arrange for them. This was the catapult my career needed. My favorite story from those years was the record producer in New York who called me to do some charts for him. We were working together in his office when he turned to me and said, I really love that record you did with Nancy Sinatra about the boots. I said, oh, that was Lee Hazelwood. I'm Lee Holdridge. He turned white. He had hired the wrong Lee. When I first started arranging in New York, I recall writing on score paper or sometimes writing on Deshaun. I'm sure our newer, younger members have just thought, Deshaun, what's that? The arrival of the Xerox machine did away with Deshaun and not a minute too soon. Hooray. Later, I realized the computer was going to be the wave of the future in musical notation. It didn't hurt that my eight-year-old son, Adam, was already becoming a computer whiz at the time. Not long after that, he started talking to me about the future coming in the form of the internet. At 13, Adam urged me to buy a new thing called domain names. They were very cheap at the time, and he said eventually people would want them and would buy them from whoever owned them. He had a list of about 20 names he wanted to buy. One of the names he had on the list, business.com, which was available then for about $50, years later sold for $200,000. I should have listened to him. <laughs> well, I finally did wake up, and the 90s were my full conversion to the computer age. First, I bought a lot of keyboards and racks to go with the computers. I started with a nightmarish program called Cubase. I picked Cubase because it was the one of the first sequencing programs that had a score-making option built into the software. I liked that aspect a lot. The ev evolution of the last few years has been such that I've gotten rid of most of the keyboards and just kept a few of the racks. Cubase has gotten better and uses the wonderful Contact 2 plugins. My writing room now consists of six computers, each assigned to different functions, one keyboard for playing on, a couple of flat screens to watch the movie on, and two black labs that always lie around sleeping, waiting for me to take a break and take them outside and throw the ball around with them. Around the corner in the next room is a 62-inch HD screen to watch the film in full glory. I will say this, no matter how the technology changes and involves, music is still music. The truths that were known to Buxtehude, Bach, Boccherini, Beethoven, Brahms, Bruckner, Britton, Bernstein, and Boulez, that's the nine Bs, by the way, <laughs> are still true. The truth does not change. There are no shortcuts. You still should study classical composition and orchestration. The computer won't do it for you. The computer relies on input. You still need to understand the craft. When I was 16, Henry Lasker, my first composition teacher, gave me an assignment. He said, 
go home and write a brass piece tonight. Well, I stayed up all night and labored and labored away at this three-minute piece for brass ensemble. The next day, I proudly walked into Mr. Lasker's studio and showed him the score. He looked at it, set it up on the piano, and played through it. Yes, he was one of those. He could read a full score and play it on the piano simultaneously. After he finished, he turned to me and said, This is a nice piece. When do they breathe? <laughs> I was stunned. I was so embarrassed. But you know what? I never forgot that lesson. To this day, when I'm scoring brass parts, I recall Henry Lasker, and I make sure the brass players can breathe. <laughs> I owe the world to my teachers. Ugo Mariani, my first violin teacher in Costa Rica, introduced me to the glories of the violin literature. Henry Lasker opened the door to composition and orchestration. Nicholas Flagello introduced me to the world of 20th century music and great film scores. By the way, I'm not done composing. I'm still just warming up. I'm about to sign a contract for my first full-length opera. Yikes. And I'm planning another full-length violin concerto. The film and television work is ongoing, and I'm planning on redoing my studio yet again this year. After all, Verdi wrote two of his greatest operas when he was 74 and 83, Otello and Falstaff. Who am I to quibble with how old we are? Age doesn't matter. It's what's up here and in here that counts. <clears throat> My advice is listen to the classics all the way from Jerome Kern to Bella Bartok. Exercise, watch your cholesterol, run with the dogs, support good and deserving independent films, help young musicians, help the arts, and above all, love and care for one another, for it can get taken away from us much too quickly. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. In the beginning. Yes. Well, you see, it's funny, because I grew up in a house, I grew up with a scientist. My dad was a, a scientist. He, he did research in tropical forestry. Uh, when I was a kid, a little kid in the 50s, we heard about global warming. They didn't use that term then, they had other terms, but he was yelling about it way back then. And we were like, oh, dad's on his thing again, you know. <laughs> but music came late to me. I was 10 years old when I started studying the violin, which I, is late. I know a lot of people start when they're three or four or five. But um, the minute I started studying the violin, my first thing was I would start rewriting my violin exercises, which which drove Don Hugo mad. He said, stop doing that. And I said, yeah, but they're more interesting this way. <laughs> so he said, I think you want to be a composer, is what he said. And that started me on that path. I was 12. By the time I was 15, uh, under the tutelage of Henry Lasker, actually 16, I had already written my first piece for piano and orchestra. And the brass players were able to breathe, you know. I learned that lesson the hard way. Um, you know, I got to tell you, I was telling Ira earlier that I get a lot of scores. People send me scores. They want to orchestrate or they want to compose. And in the first eight bars, you can tell whether someone knows how to write for the orchestra or not. I mean, you see it immediately. And uh, I think that training is so crucial. I think that that... <laughs> That legitimate background is, will never fail you. You can be working on a film with an insane director. Not that any of us have ever worked with insane directors, you know. But 
when they ask you to do something, there's a lot of compositional tricks that you can think about and you can go to. And in your, if you know the literature, you'll say, maybe he's thinking about this or he's thinking about this. Um, I was working on a film called Tus The Tuskegee Airmen, and the, this director, I love this director because he would never put temp scores in his movie. When you got the movie, it was cold. It was clean. There was nothing on it. You were allowed to create music from scratch. Now I can go to a movie and I can tell what they tempt the movie with because I hear the composer having to imitate. <laughs> what, it's crazy. It's insane. So when you get a film that is blank and you're asked to write a score for it, it's, it's like, this is unbelievable. But this director just doesn't believe in temp scores. He doesn't work much either, <laughs> unfortunately. But there was a scene in the movie, and he said, you know, this is the first time this pilot actually sees it, encounters an enemy airplane in a dogfight. And he said, what can we do to the musical language of the score to change at that point from what we've been doing before? And the only thing I could think of was to go into 12-tone music. And I said, you know, maybe if all of a sudden I just started on that right there at that point, it would literally tear apart the score that I'd been doing up to that point. And it would be like this new thing, this fear that they encountered. And you know, a device like that is something that you can think about because you know the literature. You think, where can I draw from to make that work? And he loved the moment. He loved it was perfect. And I, when I told him what it was based on, he loved it even more <laughs> because he happens to be an intellectual director, which is why he doesn't work very much. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, he's actually a phenomenal director, but uh, I just wish I just wish he did more movies. <laughs> Does that sort of cover? I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I mean. Our, every one of us in this room probably has unusual <coughs> beginning stories and how we get started. You know, I came to New York in 1962 to go to college. I didn't know a soul. I didn't know anybody. My, my dad was a scientist. He had no connections in the business. I mean, it was a start from literally starting from nowhere. But thanks to, Nancy, where are you? Thanks to the ASCAP seminars in New York at that time, that's how I met people. And that's how I got work, because I met other composers and... One guy one day said to me, can you write two piano arrangements? And I said, yeah. I never had done one, but I said, yes. Don't you, isn't that what you do? You just say yes anyway, and then you, I'll figure it out later. And uh, I said, sure. And he said, okay, I'm doing some, a show at the University of Pennsylvania. I need two piano arrangements. I went down to G. Shermer, got a lot of two piano music, and I sat down and studied it. And again, if you have the craft, you know what you're looking at. You could see how things were voiced and where they were placed and how the two pianos interacted. So when I wrote my two, two piano arrangements, they loved them and they hired me again next year and next year. <laughs> so that was what, one of my first gigs, thanks to ASCAP. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I did hear, I think the oddest term I had heard from a director once is, if I can recall it correctly, he said, I'm interested in the metabolical Physiognom physiognomics of the scene. And I was kind of like, I was, what I was thinking to myself is, you know, we're musicians. You want it fast. You want it slow. You want it medium. Do you want it sort of dark and minorish, or do you want it brighter and main? You know, I mean, give us some parameters, but he was often like, you know, psychological. I don't, even, I don't even think there was even Freud or Jung or anything. It was just out there, you know. 
the metabolical metaphysics of the seed. No, that's someone who's, I've never seen him again. I haven't seen him anywhere. <laughs> I wonder if the studios sort of finally said, get this guy out of here. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know what I did. I don't, you know, that was a difficult one. I mean, I kept asking questions. And what happens is somewhere along the line, they're going to reveal something, and you suddenly say, aha, that's the clue, you know. Um, Ron Howard, I remember, Alf, you probably remember this, when we worked on Splash, Ron Howard said, when they go underwater, I want it to be safe. And, you know, he said, diatonic scales, maybe? You know, major harmony? That's safe. <laughs> uh, use the same trick in, in the Beauty and the Beast TV series. Whenever they were up on the streets, it was discordant, polytonal, eclectic. When they went down underground, into the underground, it became lyrical, it became uh, diatonic, it became very, and that made the contrast between the two worlds. You know. But I've been lucky, I've worked with a lot of really good directors. I mean, I'm, think, I'm talking about people who knew what they were doing, but every now and then you, well, I'm not gonna mention Greg Nava because I said I wouldn't mention any <laughs> names, but, <laughs> but I'll tell you, Nathan and I worked on this television series with him together called American Family, and we were doing a score a week. We'd split the score between us. And there was a scene, I wrote this nice little guitar and strings cue, and uh, I went over to the dub, and they played it, and Greg looked at the scene, and he says, I hate this music. This is the worst piece of music I've ever heard in my life. Get it out of here. So the editors yanked it, put something else in I kind of snuck out of the dubbing where they said, well, I, I'm not needed here. <laughs> Came back the next week. You remember this story. And I'm watching. They're dubbing another one, and they're tracking some of it from stuff before. And there's that guitar string cue in this new other scene. And I'm thinking, and I look at the editor, and the editor looked, looks at me and says, rolls his eyes and does. All of a sudden, Greg tells, turns and says, that's the most gorgeous piece of music I've ever heard. <laughs> And I, was, I'm, I looked at the editor, he looked at me, he said, <laughs> you know. The, so obviously he heard it a couple of times, and maybe it, he, it, you know, all of a sudden it became familiar to him, but his first hearing of it was like, no, I hate it. And now he loved it. And it wound up turning up in a few other ones of the episodes. You just never know. You just never know. The one thing that's sure, though, I think if the music inherently is good, it's probably going to find its way to the surface sooner or later. Wasn't it Duke Ellington said, if it sounds good, it is good? <laughs> so I don't know. It's just, you know, getting started. I'd hate to be starting today. This would be a, this would be a rough time to, to have a career. Well, when I first was working in L.A., when, when I was working for Neil Diamond and I started doing some television and movie scoring, I, I don't know, it seemed like there were only about 30 or 40 guys in town that did all the scores. John, does that sound about right? And now what, we're around four or five or 600? Yeah, I mean, it's the odds, the numbers are staggering. And there's a lot of talented people around. That's what's even more difficult. So, you know... Harry Garfield, the head of music at Universal, some of you might know who he was, he'd pick up the phone and say, got, got one for you, come in next Tuesday, 2 p.m. spot. Boom. That was it. 
You just went in, you spotted a movie, you wrote a score, you went home. Now it's like demos and auditions and phone calls and send MP3s and you know, I mean it's a and you find out that there's like ten thousand other guys doing the same thing, you know. So it's I would imagine it's really rough now. I don't know. Yes, Ira. Yeah, I, I see. I was sort of eclectic because I grew up listening to Brahms and Mozart and Beethoven. You know, I mean, I really grew up with classical music. And when I came to Boston to go to high school, that's when I was sort of heard American music for the first time. That's when I started hearing George Gershwin and a lot of stuff like that, which was very startling to me. Leonard Bernstein, uh, you know, West Side Story was like, whoa, what is that? But... Um, so I really, yeah, the Latin music influence was there. You know, I mean, I revisited it from time to time. So certainly an old Ringo had elements of that. And uh, it's helped me sometimes because there's certain harmonic progressions that I, I think of as being Mexican and then others being South American. There, there's differences, there's big nuances, differences between these kinds of music. But I really was a child of classical music, and, and studying the violin was, you know, that was all that literature. And I studied, I studied the violin for seven years. Man, I tried. And I was, I was trying to learn the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, and I kept sitting there and said, how does anybody play this? And a friend of mine came over with an album of Heifetz playing it, and I said, okay, that's it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that just, like, blew me away. But... It's interesting that that came in handy later because you the, learning the violin made you think sometimes more linear in terms of orchestration as opposed to doing this, you know. So it's it's very helpful in that regard. But um, no, I, I can't say the Latin thing was a big was a big thing, you know. It was it was almost like I've discovered it more since then. Um, I mean, samba was around, we knew about it, but we didn't pay much attention to it, and then we had that. Fabulous explosion in the 60s and 70s when Jobim came on the scene and all those people. It was such wonderful music. It's still great music to listen to now. They don't write like that anymore in Brazil. That's like, that's gone. But, um, yes, Alf. Oh, you mean the male, it was a male Italian singer. Yeah, male Italian singer. Um, well, let me just say he was from New Jersey. And it was his first record, and he, had, he was going to do a session. And uh, Phil Ramone, my good friend at the time, was going to engineer the session. He had A&R Studios in New York, and we were going to have a live orchestra and rhythm section and everything. And the studio called me, and they said, they've had a request for 34 chairs in the control room. It's like, what? What's going on? And it happened to be a big control room. So he said, I, I, no, I guess that they want it. Sure enough, everybody from New Jersey was there, the husbands and the wives. And talk about, ladies, talk about those hairdos, you know, those big bouffant sort of hairdos. I mean, you'd have to look around at Phil and say, Phil, are you ready for take? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you are. Okay. Can you hear the drums? Okay. You know, that kind of stuff. But um, we did the session and we did some, I did some more arrangements for him and he went on the road and we didn't get paid. The, the musicians got paid, but the arranging, we didn't get paid. So this went on for a while. So finally I called and I said, you know, we didn't get paid for the session. Um, we'll call you back. A few days later, this very deep 
Tony Soprano type of voice calls me and says, Peter's not happy with the arrangements, so he ain't gonna pay. <laughs> so I said, you know what, that's fine, that's, don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, just, sure, whatever, hey, you know. <laughs> and that was it, I never heard from him again, you know. <laughs> Oh, I think they did, but, you know, I wasn't going to go check it out, if you know what I mean, you know, and so, uh, the record came out, yeah, yeah, but, you know, some things are better just left alone. <laughs> Boy, the things we do for music, huh? Isn't it something? <laughs> I see my agent just going, oh, gosh. <laughs> yes, yes, Liz. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. You know, like I said in my little talk, I have such a high regard for, for the teachers that I did have. They were such incredible musicians. Um, I mean, Nicholas Flagello, unbelievable. I mean, there wasn't a score in the world that you couldn't say and that he could sit down and he could play a quote from it. I mean, this is how well-versed he was. Uh, and... They were all such, you know, Henry Lasker was this great composer and had written operas. He'd written all kinds of things. And, I mean, I have such a high regard for that. I think teaching is a very, very, very special profession. And, uh, boy, we certainly don't take care of our teachers, but it is something that is very valuable and very important. And music teachers, you know, they can, they can set your life. They can just set you on the right path forever. And, you know, Henry Lasker, another little thing he did. I walk into his studio one day, and he pulls out Jerome Kern's Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, and he puts it on the piano, and he plays through it. He said, now that's sonata form in the most perfect way that it is. So this is the da-da-da-da-da, this is the exposition. He went through the whole thing, and then he played the bridge and the development and all that stuff. Came back, he said, now we're going to do the same thing with the Schubert Sonatina. Same idea, just a little longer, you know, and... Little by little, he showed me the building blocks of how it was all put together. I mean, these are lessons that just stay with you forever. And the thing that I really loved about all three of them is they were very positive about music. They were very, it was a wonderful thing. And that learning how it worked was even a more wonderful thing. And I'll, I'll tell you, like, for instance, when I auditioned for Juilliard, at, at age 17, I already had that piano concerto. I had written a ballet. I had about four or five string pieces that I'd written. I'd written works for flute and piano and stuff. And I arrived there for my, you know, in front of the group. And they said, well, we see you've written a lot of music. Yes. But there's not enough 12-tone music in here. That was their comment. Now, I was kind of scared at 17, and I thought, but years later, it was a slow burn. I got angrier and angrier about that comment because I said, that is a narrow-minded, negative thing to say to a student, that there's not enough. Who cares? If you don't want to write 12-tone music, that's your business. You write what you choose to write, not what they want you to write. And I thought about, that's not teaching in the best way. That is negative teaching. And that's why a lot of times you get this kind of negativity that occurs in the concert world, you know, where they kind of put things down because either they're not 12-tone or serial or this or, or, or Philip Glass or something, or they are. You know, I mean, it's like they're never happy. So here's my solution. I don't read reviews anymore. 
Yes. Well, yes, I wound up at Manhattan School of Music, which it was okay. It was okay, but the the, the real gem was finding Nicholas Flagello and and pulling him aside one day and said, "Can I study privately with you?" That was the best one of the best decisions I ever made. I asked him, and he uh, he was he was so much fun because he would spend the first half hour explaining how you should cook spaghetti. And I said, okay, I think maybe we should spend some time looking at the scores now. <laughs> and, uh, yes? Uh, I saw one post uh, this week. Yes. Yes. One, one of my first gigs, uh, and I, I have to thank David Shire and Billy Goldenberg, who were, I befriended in New York. They were some of the first people I ever knew. And both wonderful composers, wonderful pianists, wonderful people, too. And uh, Billy Goldenberg was famous for doing a lot of the ballet scores for Broadway shows. That's how he started. And he said to me one day, you know, there's this new choreographer who's doing his first Broadway show, and they're looking for a dance arranger, and I can't do it because I've got my first TV show in Hollywood. I'm going to Hollywood to do it. So I'm going to recommend that you audition for it. So I did, and I got the gig. So the next thing I know is I'm sitting there, and what you do is you watch the dancers, the choreographer works with the dancers, and you play, and you notate, you quickly make notations, then you go home that night and you write a score that fits, and you come back the next day and you play it. So it, it, it teaches you to be fast. What good training for the film business, right? You know who that choreographer was? Michael Bennett. And I saw immediate... No, this was way earlier than Chorus Line. This is a, a musical called A Joyful Noise. But I could see right off the bat that he was brilliant. His, his, his ballets were marvelous. And this was his first gig. He had been an assistant to Jerome Robbins up to that point. And um, he went on to <laughs> many, many things. But that was, a, that was quite an experience, quite an experience. But it, it, it teaches you to be fast, and you can't procrastinate. And, uh, you know, as you know in our business, if you can't do it quickly, you might as well pack your bags and go home. That's the other thing. When I first started at Universal doing TV shows, the very first show that I worked on was a two-hour movie called McLeod. It was one of the McLeod episodes. And literally, they would walk in, and all they wanted to know is if you had recorded five minutes in the first hour. And the, I could see the editor said, yes, he has. As a matter of fact, he's done seven. Okay, good. And they turn around and walk out. <laughs> Never once did they say, is it any good? <laughs> That's all they wanted to know. They wanted to know that you could do, you know. And I'm telling you, it was, that was like you were in. And little did I know that these, this fabulous orchestra, I met a dear man, some of you may remember, Shelley Mann was, what, was the percussionist in the orchestra. I was like, you're Shelley Mann? I was like, he was very nice to me. And he looked over me one day after a couple of scores. He said, you know, you have kind of a baby face. Maybe you ought to grow a mustache. Scare the orchestra a little bit, you know? <laughs> I mean, he was one of the great jazz legendary drummers of all time, you know, just leaning over and saying, you know, and I was like, what a world we live in, you know. That is a wonderful thing about music. There's a, there's a real spirit of, of taking care of each other and looking after each other, isn't there? I mean, I know it's a competition, but that aside, 
there is a real sort of a brotherhood that, that's here, and sisterhood, of course, you know. But I meant brotherhood in the universal sense. But uh, there is something about that. And I, I've always loved the way musicians kind of look after each other and they talk to you and they're friendly to you and, you know, give you advice. And it's very nice. It's a wonderful thing. I wish the rest of the planet were a little bit more like this. Now that, that universal movie <coughs> Now, <laughs> yes, Alf. <laughs> I know. Skyway to Death is one of my low ebbs of my career. <laughs> Don't worry, John. It was before I had met you at Roxanne. I didn't know the two of you yet. You know, that was the old Al Bart days. You guys, and that was even, it was even before Al Bart. I was just meeting it. But once I was in at Universal, they were doing 15 television shows a week. And they would score all of them. And, you know, they had hot and cold running composers running down the hall. I mean, they were, we were all running there. And um, I remember one time getting a call from them and said, we've just had a last-minute cancellation. We need you to spot something. Can you be here this afternoon at 2? Yes, okay, boom. So I go to the spotting session. They hand me the notes already. Uh, they say, it's just a formality. You're going to look at the movie and check the notes. And I look on the notes and I see Dave Grusin's name crossed off and my name penciled in underneath it. <laughs> but those were the days, you know, it was just like, shh. So it's movie after movie, you know, every week, every, they call you, next one, next one, next one. And I get this call one day to do a little TV movie called Skyway to Death. Now, they had just had a huge success with Airport, which I think was 1975. It was a huge movie for them. So one of the tricks that they did was whenever they had a successful movie, they would make a cheaper version of it for television. Now, airport, you had an airport, you had 747s, you had airplanes, everything. Skyway to Death was five people stuck in a cable car in Palm Springs on the tramway, you know, and that was the movie. <laughs> I gotta tell you, it was tough to sit through two hours of these people just talking about their lives sitting in this little cable car trying to whether they're gonna fall or they're gonna be rescued. <sighs> I don't know, you just sit there and you're like, well, think of something, you know. So it was, con it was considered, I think, one of the worst TV movies ever made. And Alf never let me live it down. Alf would, he doesn't, he would call me and he'd say, Lee, Skyway to Death is on CBS this morning at 4 a.m. I'd say, gee, thanks, Al. <laughs> it was 3 a.m. when he called me. He said, yeah, Alf, what are you doing up at this hour? <laughs> he was probably writing. <laughs> probably writing Moonlighting, right? You know? Yeah, that's, sometimes that's when you started, was at 3 a.m., right? But... Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know what was an uh, it, so that that was yeah. So that's our code word, Skyway to Death. It keeps you humble, you know. It keeps your feet on the ground. You need to every now and then. You need to remind yourself that you don't get to do all these wonderful, grand films that you get to do. That every now and then you have to do something that is just you got to figure out a way to get through it, <laughs> and it's hard. 
No, 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 no. This is actually a wonderful film. Mark Friedman and I are working on a movie together right now. Mark's a sound designer. The director doesn't know we're playing hooky. But uh, uh, it's actually, I think, a terrific film. And I think very, of course, it has an hour of music in it. Um, but that's most of the time we're, we're fortunate. We work on things that are good and we work with good people. But boy, every now and then they throw a curve at you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I. Well, it, I, I, t I tell you, it happens a lot. I think the purest moments are when you're writing and you actually are composing and you know it's good and you're getting it right and it's working and you know it and you know it in your bones and you know in your gut that it's working. Those are wonderful moments. And then standing conducting the orchestra is another one of those pure moments of when it's just absolutely magnificent. There's this orchestra playing this music and everything. But then uh, after that, man, it's up in the air. I mean, you don't know. I, I never tell people that I've done a movie until I'm sure my name is on the credits and they've dubbed the picture and the score is still in it because you know, you know what happens. They, they yank scores. I mean... Did you all remember that story about Elmer going to see, uh, was it uh, Gangs of New York, where they invited him to the premiere and he didn't know his score had been replaced? That is just, I mean, awful. And Yes, John? Yeah, you, you, you do have an advantage because you, you kind of see where maybe they went down the wrong road. And it happened to me that Warner Brothers picture, Kinder Transport, Into the Arms of Strangers, remember that? They came to me and they said, we don't like our score, we want you to replace it. There was a point there where I, was re I replaced about four or five scores, and my friend Milt Oaken said to me, what are you, the Red Adair of film composers? <laughs> but it's just, it is, it's, you feel badly because often the person you're replacing is a wonderful composer. And, you know, I got to tell you, I don't always think it's their fault. I think sometimes they get directed down the wrong street, so to speak, or they get asked for something and they do that, and then they're told, no, that's not what we want. I don't know. And you do have the advantage of when you come in second that you kind of see where things shouldn't have gone, and then you kind of say, well, what about this? And then they, oh, yeah, that, we like that, you know. So uh, it's harder to be first <laughs> because you got to sort of blaze the trail, so to speak. And hope you get lucky, but yes, the lady back there. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, no, they are in other businesses. What does that tell you? <laughs> They're both musicians. Uh, Adam, my older son, has a fabulous baritone voice, has perfect pitch, which I don't have, played the flute, is a wonderful musician, but he started a business, a web business, an internet business out of Portland and is very successful now. And my youngest son studied the guitar and the bass for a lot of years and played in the high school orchestras and was, you know, played the string bass and all that. Tried to audition at USC for the music school. The day we went down for the audition, there were maybe 50 other bass players wandering around and John looked at me and said, Dad. <laughs> Some of these people have been playing since they were in the womb. <laughs> I don't have a chance, you know. And we heard some of them playing, and he said, they're way better than I am. So he played and all that, but he said, I'm going to go into something else. He plays for fun, 
but he's also in the internet business. I don't know, you know. I, I I'm thrilled that they're doing what they're doing. I think it's great. They did my my web page was the first web page they did, and then they've they've got now about 50 clients since then. You know, so they're doing extremely well. But they they love music. They know music, and they and they certainly are aware of it. And they listen to it a lot. And they they have the ear. Adam has the ear. He really notices pitch and stuff like that. But but he's in another business, <laughs> and he's the one I should have listened to. <laughs> yes, Nathan. You know, I I really like it all because it it keeps you. You know you know what that's like. It kind of keeps you excited because you're doing something different all the time. It's a lot of fun. If you get a movie that's good, I mean, it just hooks you. It lives with you. you you're inside it. It's just, you, it's great. It's great fun. Uh, television is fun in the sense that it's like living on the edge of a cliff because you have no time. <laughs> right, Alf? Alf Clausen, who hasn't been let out of his room with Bart Simpson for 20 years. <laughs> but um, really, it's, it's uh, and then, of course, the concert works are, fun and scary to write. I love writing opera because they call you maestro. It's like, who? Oh, you mean me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it takes a lot of time. You have to spend a lot of time studying scores. You have to learn a lot of literature. I do conduct, I've been doing some guest conducting recently uh, where I've been asked to do some of my things, but Man, you've got to you got to really woodshed to be a conductor. You got to know your scores. Uh, nowadays, they don't they don't spend a lot of rehearsal time. So you got to walk in. and You just got to have it at your fingertips. It's best if you know it. I mean, I remember I watched John Barbaroli conduct in Mahler Ninth Symphony from memory once, and I never forgot that. I said, "How in the hell did he do that?" But of course, you know, he studied it. He knew it. So I have again a lot of regard for that. I think being a serious conductor is, isn't it damn exciting that Dudamel's coming here? Won't that be exciting? It's like, it's like Leonard Bernstein re revisited. You know, I feel like it's the 60s all over again. New York Philharmonic, huh? Yeah. Yes, Gail. Hi. Hey, Gail. By the way, many of these scores I mentioned Gail played on right from the beginning, even back in New York days. It's funny now what the the melody thing with the films has happened. It's probably why I'm so attracted to opera because I really want to bring that melodic feeling in, back into the opera. So I think it's been gone from the operas for a while. The 20th century operas just don't have. And so I said, here's a revolution. Melody! <laughs> but anyway, we'll see if that works or not. The one that we're planning to do, I, I'm going to write a very, 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 very lyrical romantic score, you'll see. It's a revolution, it's, there's a lot of tragedy in it, but it's also very uh, inspiring and reaching up. So I have a lot of great literature to, to think about. But I, I love, I'll tell you all a little story about Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which is one of my favorite stories of that movie. And Gail, you probably remember this. So here we are with about 90-piece orchestra. We're doing the big flying sequence. It's about a seven-minute cue, and it's a seagull flying over the mountains. And now I have to you have to understand something. I got eight bars from Neil Diamond, <laughs> and I'm looking at the timing notes, and I say, "Well, Neil, seven fifty-four. <laughs> you what? What do you want me to do?" He says, "Well, you'll think of something." 
<laughs> so I wrote this big symphonic cue, obviously based on the eight bars. Variations in theme, right? And this big flying sequence, he flies up over the Rockies and all that, and there's a sequence in it where the, the seagull dies. He lands in some snow and he dies, and he goes into this other world. And the end of the sequence is going to be the chord on the dissolve when he dies. And after, and there was this actually really pretty melody that Neil had written called Dear Father, the song, which I brought in at the end and played. It was beautiful. It had the celli doing soli melody with the full string section accompanying them. And it wound up down into this beautiful, beautiful, it kind of worked its way down harmonically, harmonically. You can hear it on the, on the album if you want. And arrives at this incredible, most gorgeous C major chord, the entire string section with the exception of the first horn playing an F-sharp, sustaining against the C major chord. And Vince DeRosa played that F-sharp just as gorgeous as anything you could ever imagine. I mean, it was superb just holding that F-sharp. Didn't waver on pitch or anything as the entire string section held a C chord. And it was stunning. It was gorgeous. It was just breathtaking. You remember that? And I cut it off, you know, and as you see the seagull, he dies. All of a sudden, the door to the studio opens, and out comes the artist, and he says, Lee, I think there's a wrong note in the last chord. <laughs> you know, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? Uh, the orchestra cracked up. The orchestra laughed, because everybody totally understood and I was like oh gosh Igor where are you when we need you you know <laughs> but I had to change the note to a G and it lost the whole thing because he wouldn't he didn't accept it he didn't accept it and it was it was stunning it was stunning it just chills <laughs> yeah yeah and you could see right at that moment it was and DeRosa, you know him. I mean, he had this breath control. I think it was he held it for a long time. He held that note. And it was, it was like unbelievable. I mean, this is why this guy is one of the legends, right? And why when I went to the London Symphony the next year, they said, do you know Vince DeRosa? And I said, yes. They all bowed. <laughs> all the horn players in the London Symphony. I mean, that's something, isn't it? But that kind of brings you down, doesn't it, Nathan? Those things, <laughs> it's like they deflate, deflate your balloon. <laughs> you know, that's the problem, you see. The problem is he didn't listen to the, any of that music. He didn't listen to Debussy or Ravel or Stravinsky or Bartok. He didn't know any of that stuff. And that's too bad because it's great stuff and you get, you get so many ideas from those things, you know? Well, years later, I did it with the London Symphony. I did a sweet version. I put it back. <laughs> I put the note back. But it, it just wasn't the same. You know, there was something about that moment in the film. It was so, so, so amazing to see that. That was, a, again, a bit of scoring that would just work. But there's the problem where a little bit of ignorance brings the level down, right? You see? It's strange how that happens in the culture sometimes. 
And, you know, I, I thought if he had only maybe had a little hipper to the 20th century, he might have realized, oh, yeah, that's, that's cool, you know. But such is life. Yes, Alf. It's, it's not about the self. It's about the music. It's about the work that you do. And, and it's about giving back. And, and, you know, we've been through, the city is devastated right now. We've been through a terrible time. And many of you probably know people or some of you have been affected. And the thing, the, again, the beauty of the, those of us that are in music, we'll take care of each other. We'll look after each other. If anybody needs help, we'll certainly reach out to them. But I wish the world was more like the music world. I really would do. It would be a much better place, much better place. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast. <laughs>